Chapter 3 of The First American Sister of Charity, Elizabeth Bailey Seaton, by John Clement Reveal. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The Cross in Barclay Street. Sorely tried and wounded, but victorious, Elizabeth Seaton had returned from one battlefield. Another and a fiercer conflict awaited her at home. A few days after she had clasped her children to her heart, the friend of her soul, Rebecca Seaton, her sister-in-law, died in her arms. The blows of adversity and sorrow were falling heavily upon this valiant woman. Five children whom she loved with all the tenderness of a mother were to be educated, provided for, and God had taken away father, husband, the elder Seaton, and her second father, and that prudent and unselfish Rebecca, so dearly loved by her little ones, so true and kind to her. Her present burdens were heavy, the future was dark and uncertain, but great was her trust in God. We hear of no idle complaints, of no empty murmurings. Her children absorbed her time and care, and on them she lavished all the treasures of her motherly affection. Now that the fortune which she had hoped to leave them was greatly reduced, if not entirely impaired by her husband's death, she realized more than ever that they could never face the world and fight the battles of life unless their minds and their hearts were trained to the highest ideals of virtue. With these, they might still successfully wage their battles. Without them, they were already defeated before the battle began. Elizabeth Seton, the angel of the Lazaretto, is a tragic figure. Elizabeth Seton, widowed of the husband of her youth, as dignified in her poverty as she had been fascinating in the hour of her prosperity and social triumph, teaching her little ones, toiling and watching for them, sharing their pains and joys, is a still more appealing picture. Yet all the while a fierce struggle was going on in her soul. A voice seemed to be calling to her. In that voice there sounded echoes of the consecrated bells she had heard along the banks of the Arno calling the people to Mass, echoes of the prayers she had joined in under the hospitable roof of the Felicis, faint reminders of the words heard from Antonio Felici's lips as they sat on the deck of the Flamingo, and that true Christian gentleman explained to her the doctrines of the Catholic Church. At times, she heard the sound of the little bell of St. Peter's Church on Barclay Street, a stone's throw from Trinity and St. Paul's Church, where she went to the Protestant service. That bell was calling the few faithful Catholics, the poor, despised but noble children of Aaron to Mass, the same mass which she had heard with such deep emotion in the old world. And over St. Peter's there rose the cross, silent monitor and apostle lifting up its message for all to hear, far above the crowded streets of already busy and bustling New York, the cross she had long borne on her heart. But the cross over that humble church where a handful of Catholics gathered at the altar seemed to mean much more to her now it had a special message for her she knew it it was too insistent not to be heard all her life as maid and wife 
in the peace of her father's house, at the bedside of her dying husband, this noble woman had made God the center of her being. That explains the depth and the tenderness, the strength and the purity of her love and affection for all those with whom God had linked her fate. God she meant to serve above all. Ever she had had the most intimate sense of his presence, the most compelling realization of his rights over her love. She meant to serve him now, no matter what the cost. But where was he to be truly found? In the church of her baptism, in that Episcopal church so dignified, so serene, so orderly, but so cold so unable to give her a sense of nearness to God and His Blessed Son, or in that church represented by the cross-crowned edifice in Barclay Street, which she had seen in Italy so strong and so tender and so happy in the possession of that very God whom it worshipped. Elizabeth had read her Bible over and over. From its pages she realized what the church Christ had founded must be, was the church of her baptism the true and only church of Christ? We know from the pages of another illustrious convert, the soul-stirring pages of Newman's Apologia, that no conflict equals in poignant agony the struggle of the seeker after religious truth asking himself where that truth is to be found and facing the difficulties that the sacrifices that must be made to follow that truth no matter over what thorny path or frowning heights it projects its beams. That terrible fight raged for some time in the soul of Elizabeth Seton. Writing to a Protestant friend who had alluded to her conversion, she says, I assure you my becoming a Catholic was a very simple consequence of going to a Catholic country where it was impossible for anyone interested in religion not to see the wide difference between the first established faith given and founded by our Lord and His Apostles and the various forms it has since taken. And as I had always delighted in reading the Scriptures, I had so deep an impression of the mysteries of divine revelation that though full of the sweet thought that every good and well-meaning soul was right, I was determined when I came home, both in duty to my children and my own soul, to learn all I was capable of understanding on the subject. If ever a soul did make a fair inquiry, our God knows that mine did, and every day of life increases more and more my gratitude to Him for having made me what I am. It was the knowledge of the Protestant doctrine with regard to faith that made me a Catholic. For as soon as on inquiry I found that Episcopalians did not think of everybody right, I was convinced that the safe plan was to unite with the church in which at all events they admitted that I would find salvation, and where also I would be sure of the apostolic succession, as well as of the many consolations which no other religion but the Catholic can afford. This passage and similar ones to be found in the correspondence of Mrs. Seton show that her strength and nobility of character were equaled by her clear and logical intellect. She needed now all the aid that it could give, and well might she thank good Dr. Bailey for the rather stern training under which she was brought up. She fought the battle of truth with her own heart, 
with her own immediate friends and family who were soon made aware that a change was taking place in her convictions with a dear friend of her earlier years one who had been a spiritual guide and to whom she was genuinely attached an episcopalian minister of unusual attainments the rev m hobart who tried to keep her in the church of her baptism she quietly but boldly fought the battle of truth she was it must be confessed in some respects not well equipped for the task serious in thought and clear-visioned she had after all but little formal catholic training nor had she read many catholic books but her heart was instinctively catholic she wanted the truth she prayed she was willing nay nobly anxious to do whatever god willed then she had seen catholicism at work even from the capitano of the lazaretto she had learned a lesson of kindness the example of the felicis had spoken more eloquently to her of the beauty and the nobility of the faith than learned treatises could do at this very moment filippo felici was writing to her to encourage her in the struggle and to solve her doubts while antonio during the time which he could spare from his trips to other parts of the country was at her side with his cheering words his generous aid his ever open purse and ever the cross on st peter's in barclay street was pointing skyward silent apostle stern-spoken herald of the truth how eloquent its warning and in that church in the tabernacle to which as she tells us her eyes unconsciously turned as she sat in her pew at trinity or in st paul's the god she loved dwelt not in shadow not as some vague energy but really truly and substantially the poor worshippers of st peter's the humble laborers of the docks and mills and warehouses along the riverside possessed him they could hold him in their hearts she too must share their joy and their happiness encouraging words from the saintly chevereux in boston to whom she had exposed her doubts from bishop carroll of baltimore whom antonio felici had interested in his friend showed her the path she must inevitably follow if she wished to please god on the feast of the epiphany eighteen o five she happened to read a passage from one of the sermons of the saintly bordeloux the great jesuit preacher who had died just a hundred years before speaking of the disappearance of the star that had led the wise men on their way and addressing those who had lost the star of faith this great master of the spiritual life says when light has been vouchsafed and then withdrawn the memory of the light must take the place of the light it suffices for us to be able to say we have seen the star there are in the church doctors and priests as there were then men appointed to conduct you whom you have only to listen to inquire of them as to your course and they will tell you what to do the words were as a flash of heavenly light some days after she had in all likelihood some short conferences with the rev matthew o'brien then pastor of st peter's who found her well grounded in the truths of faith 
on Ash Wednesday, 1805, in the presence of Antonio Felici. The seeker after truth had reached the goal. For the first time, she entered St. Peter's. It was home at last, and the peace of God. The altar rails were crowded, and the faithful were receiving the ashes. The first word she heard told of her human frailty and the grave. Memento homo, quia pulvis es, et in pulverem reverteris. Remember, man, that thou art dust, and into dust thou shalt return. Elizabeth heard and was not afraid. She had faced death once for a husband's love. She would face it now a hundred times for the love of God. And as she lifted her eyes above the tabernacle, she saw Vallejo's painting of the crucifixion. Her God had died for her. As they rested on the tabernacle, she knew that her God was living there for her and wanted her love. She gave it to him without reserve. A few moments later, she had made her profession of faith in the hands of the pastor and in the presence of Antonio Felici. On the Feast of the Annunciation, after her first confession, she made her first communion, and a peace beyond telling flooded her soul. No other comment can be made on this solemn event than the one which Elizabeth herself makes in a letter to Amabilia Felici, Antonio's wife. I am his, and he is mine. Elizabeth needed these heavenly consolations. Once a Catholic, she lost caste with her relations. Doors hitherto open to her were now closed. For the moment, social standing and prestige were lost. Poverty was facing her. To ward it off from her children, for herself she cared little, she had to open a little school in Stuyvesant's Lane, Bowery, near St. Mark's Church. But at a time when anti-Catholic riots were taking place in Augustus Street, now City Hall Place, and Mayor DeWitt Clinton was obliged to issue a proclamation to protect the lives and property of Catholics, it is not astonishing that the venture should be a failure. But God never leaves his servants quite helpless before the storm. Generous friends Elizabeth found in the family of James Barry, a rich and noble-hearted Irish merchant, in Bishop Carroll, the champion of every form of helplessness, and in those saintly priests who laid the foundation of the Catholic Church in the United States, Tisserand, Seboud, Matignon, Cheverus, Dubois, and Dubourg. The Felicis never failed her, and thanks to an annuity of $600, which they had settled upon, Mrs. Seton was enabled to face the crisis. The noble brothers of Leghorn wished even that she should make her home with them, but she had gratefully to decline. The future might be dark, but with her trust in God she knew that her paths would be made smooth. When she knelt before Bishop Carroll to receive the soldier's sacrament of confirmation and then listened to his words of advice and comfort, it was as if a great burden had been lifted from her shoulders. Another sturdy pioneer of the faith in the newly born republic Father Dubourg, superior of St. Mary's Seminary, Baltimore, realizing that for the present New York was barren ground for the task which God intended, 
told her of a work calling for generous hearts and sturdy hands. Baltimore had no school for Catholic girls. Why would she not attempt to open one? The words were a revelation. Elizabeth did not hesitate, especially when the plan had received the emphatic endorsement of Bishop Carroll, of Fathers Matillon and Cheverou. With her two boys safely placed in Georgetown College, the dauntless woman bade farewell to the city she loved, to the friends of childhood, to the house in which she had spent so many happy days with her father, her husband, and her beloved Rebecca. The parting must have been painful, for hers was an affectionate and loving nature. In June 1808, in company with her daughters Anna, the little fairy of the Lazaretto, with Rebecca and Catherine, she sailed on the packet Grand Sachem for Baltimore. After a seven days' journey, in the year that followed the record-making voyage from New York to Albany of Robert Fulton's steam-driven Claremont, they arrived in the metropolis of Maryland. It was June 16, 1808, the Feast of Corpus Christi. That day marks an epoch in the history of the Catholic Church in the United States. End of chapter 3